from the FLI Audio Files, an interview about the state of nuclear weapons with Dr. David Wright of the Union of Concerned Scientists. I'm Arielle Kahn with the Future of Life Institute. For decades during the Cold War, Americans lived in fear of nuclear war. With the end of the Cold War, though, that fear subsided, and we don't really worry much about the risks of nuclear war anymore. So it's no surprise that the presidential candidates haven't gone into much depth on the issue. During the Republican debate on December 15, most of the candidates indicated that they supported increased spending to upgrade our nuclear weapons program. Both Clinton and Trump have said one of their biggest concerns is a nuclear weapon falling into the hands of terrorists. While Sanders argues that climate change is our greatest threat and we should decrease spending on the nuclear program. I'm here today with Dr. David Wright, who is co-director of the Global Security Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists, to discuss our complacency about nuclear weapons and to better understand what the risks really are. David, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So the first question I'd like to ask you comes from that December 15 Republican debate when Trump caught some flack for not seeming to know what the nuclear triad is. Can you explain how the nuclear triad works? Sure. It was interesting to somebody like me who's who's watched this for a long time to see that people, uh, even like Trump, who's been around for a while, don't sort of get this. When the United States and, and Soviet Union at that point uh, first started building nuclear weapons, what they had were bombers. And so they made uh, nuclear weapons you could draw from bombs, and they had strategic bombers. At some point, they developed long-range missiles, which they put in silos in the ground. Those are called uh, ICBMs, intercontinental range ballistic missiles. And eventually, uh, in trying to make those systems uh, more survivable because you could hide them in the ocean, uh, they put missiles on submarines. And so when people talk about the triad, that's really what they're talking about, is, is nuclear bombers, uh, land-based nuclear weapons, and sea-based nuclear weapons. And the idea has always been uh, deterrence, that if you fire a nuclear weapon at the other country, you will get back a retaliation in kind and that, that uh, the, the surety of that is supposed to be what keeps things stable and keeps anybody from firing in the first place. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the idea of deterrence. I, that's obviously a really important aspect of our nuclear policy. Um, and sort of along the same lines is the hair trigger alert. Can you explain what that is and how, how that connects to deterrence? Also, I'd, I'd like to know if you think deterrence really works. Well, so let me start with with what hair trigger alert is. So during the Cold War between the U.S. And, and Soviet Union, there was a concern that because each country sort of knew where the other country's bombers were and knew where their land-based missiles were, and because command and control systems were not all that robust, there was always a concern that one country might try to have a, a surprise first strike against the other country. And if they could do that in a way that kept the other country from being able to retaliate with nuclear weapons, then they would gain some sort of advantage, that they would be able to launch a nuclear attack, the other side would not be able to respond. Uh, the way they responded to that was to say, well, what we want to do is, if we see an incoming attack, be able to get our missiles off the ground so quickly that even if the other country's missiles land and, and destroy the empty silos, that they know that they would still get a nuclear retaliation. So the idea, again, was how do you assure the other country that there's nothing they can do to fire on you that they will not get the retaliation back? And so the idea was 
to have this quick launch system. Now, you can argue that maybe that made sense during the Cold War, that people were worried about a, a first strike. But the problem is that that Cold War policy is still in place today, that both the United States and Russia each keep close to a thousand uh, nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert, ready to fire within a couple minutes. And it no longer makes any sense for a couple of reasons. One is that while relations between the U.S. and Russia are not great today, nobody thinks that there's going to be an, a first strike. Neither country thinks that they could disarm the other country to the, to the extent that they would not get a retaliatory strike back. And part of the reason for that is that both countries have, for example, submarine launch missiles. And even if you knew where all of the other countries' land-based missiles were and could destroy them somehow, you would still be talking about hundreds and hundreds of submarine launch missiles that you wouldn't be able to attack. And that is certainly enough to deter you from trying to launch an attack in the first place. So this notion that we still need to keep nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert for deterrence really doesn't make any sense. And instead, we're in a situation where by having these policies that you need to make launch decisions very quickly and get your missiles off the ground, that it increases the chance that you'll launch on, a, on mistaken warning or that there'll be some sort of accident. So it actually increases the risk. And in fact, some people in the military today say that the risk of an accidental uh, nuclear war starting because of a mistaken launch is greater than any other type of, of uh, a start to a nuclear war. And the question of whether or not deterrence works, uh, you know, I think it's sort of anybody's guess. In theory, it makes some sense. Uh, we haven't had a nuclear exchange, but it may be simply that people are sensible enough that they wouldn't do it anyway. I mean, I think, to, I think that's a very hard question to answer. So that actually brings up quite a few questions that I have, but I'll, I'll start with both Clinton and Trump have expressed concerns that a nuclear weapon will fall into the hands of a terrorist. And I'm curious how you think that risk uh, compares to the risk of an accidental nuclear war or even an intentional war. So let me back up a minute there. When people worry about nuclear risk, there are really a couple things they worry about. You'll hear people talk about nonproliferation. Nonproliferation typically means trying to keep other countries from uh, having the capability to make nuclear weapons. Um, another one is uh, stopping nuclear terrorism, and that tends to be trying to, trying to find ways to keep nuclear material out of the hands of terrorists, which are sub-state actors. And, and the final thing is trying to get the current nuclear powers uh, to do something to change their policies to make things more stable, to make nuclear war less, uh, less likely. So stopping nuclear terrorism is really a case of trying to make sure that, for example, nuclear power around the world is safeguarded, is that the material is, is very carefully guarded to make sure that it can't get in the hands of people that, uh, that you wouldn't want to have it. And similarly, in the weapon states like the United States um, and, and, and Russia, to make sure that, that weapons-grade material that's been made for nuclear weapons doesn't somehow get out of security and slip into hands that you wouldn't want it in. And that, that at the end of the Cold War was a real concern about the Soviet Union, where there was real concern about whether the, the uh, Soviet uh, nuclear material was, was really secure enough. In terms of likelihood, you know, it's, these are all very low probability events, low probability, high consequence events. So I'd be, I'm not sure I would want to put a probability on them, a relative probability. But what I would say is that these three things, nonproliferation, stopping new countries from getting these weapons, stopping nuclear terrorism, 
and making sure that the nuclear weapon states deal with their systems, all three of those have to be taken very seriously to make sure that we don't end up in a disaster. One of the things that, that I wanted to go back to is the idea of the accidental nuclear attack, which is something I've seen you write about quite a bit. Can you give an example of a time in the past when we've had a close call like that? Yeah, so um, people sometimes talk about accidental launches. What I tend to focus on are what I call mistaken launches. And again, the idea was that to make sure that a country wasn't surprised by an attack from the other country, the United States and, and Soviet Union at that point both set up early warning systems. So some of these are on satellites, some of them are ground-based radars. And the idea is that these would be able to detect an incoming attack before it landed and allow you then a certain amount of time to launch your weapons before the incoming attack landed. Now, the problem is that it doesn't give you much time. It, it, you, you may have um, 10 to 15 minutes uh, once you get warning, depending on what, on what system the warning is coming from. So an interesting example, and probably the scariest example, was in 1983. It was the really sort of the height of the Cold War. There were strong sort of negative feelings between the United States and the Soviet Union at that point. And a Russian early warning system, Soviet warning, early warning system at that point, seemed to show that there was an incoming attack of five U.S. Uh, nuclear missiles. And they checked the sensors. The sensors seemed to be operating properly. And at that point, had, had the Soviets who were staffing the center followed procedure, they would have recommended that there be a Soviet launch in retaliation. Now, fortunately, the person uh, who was overseeing that decided that he was concerned about whether or not it, the, the warning was real, on and on, and he, he decided not to report it as a real attack. He said that, there was, that it was a mistaken signal that they had gotten, which, in fact, it turned out to be. But when he, when he told his superiors that, he didn't actually know that to be true. Now, that's a case where people often say, you know, there's a lot of safeguards that keep you from launching nuclear weapons when you're not supposed to, and there's all these layers of security. But that's a case where, because they thought that this might have been a real attack, most of those layers of safeguards are taken off so that they can actually launch the missiles. And there have been several cases like that, where because of the short amount of time involved, warnings that appear to be real have set in motion sort of the launch process, the decision-making process. And fortunately, in the cases so far, that hasn't led to an actual launch. But what worries people like me is, is when you see cases like that happen, you realize that at some point the right or the wrong sequence of mistakes and misunderstandings and things like that could actually lead to the launch of a weapon. Many of the candidates have argued for increasing spending on our nuclear budget to help upgrade things like our B-52s and, and other aspects of our nuclear weapon systems. Do you think that would help address some of these issues with accidental or mistaken nuclear launches, or do you think it could potentially make things worse? And in fact, the Obama administration has talked about spending uh, on the order of a trillion dollars over the next couple decades on essentially rebuilding the U.S. arsenal, uh, and in addition to that, to building uh, a new generation of nuclear weapons, which which haven't existed before, taking pieces from things that have been built and uh, weapons have been built and, and putting together new warheads. So th those things would not help the problem that I just talked about, because what you really want to do in that case is to, to avoid the risks of mistaken or accidental launches. What you really want to do is change U.S. policy to say, we're not going to launch 
on short notice. We are, are going to understand that our systems and our warning may be erroneous and not set up a system where we want to be able to launch within minutes. So that would solve that problem. The biggest thing that I think people have to grapple with uh, as part of the election, and uh, you know, again, this is something that, that we have not seen the Obama administration, for example, I think grapple with sufficiently, is to, is to have a discussion of what nuclear weapons are really for. And once you've decided what nuclear weapons are for, then you can ask what that implies about what kind of arsenal the United States needs. And I would say that, that the, the bottom line of that is that nuclear weapons should only be used to deter the use of nuclear weapons by another country, and if necessary, to respond to the use of nuclear weapons against you. That's what's sometimes called sole purpose, and so that that's the only purpose of nuclear weapons. Now, unfortunately, even under the, the uh, Obama administration, when they did their nuclear posture review, they left some loopholes in there. They said, well, our main purpose is going to be deterrence. But we'll leave open the option of, of using nuclear weapons in certain cases against other threats, chemical, biological, things like that. And once you start to say uh, we're thinking about uses other than deterrence, then people start thinking about, well, we need special weapons for this and we need special kinds of weapons for that. And you get into this, this really um, large sort of trillion dollar type expense of, of building a, a large arsenal with a lot of different types of weapons, where in fact, if you say the point of, of what we're trying to do is to be able to deter an attack and, and potentially respond to an attack from a country like Russia, it puts very different requirements on the system you have, both in terms of what they need to do and numbers. So what I would really like to see come out of uh, the debates around the campaign would be for people to sort of go back to square one and say, you know, if we're worried about terrorism, nuclear weapons are not going to help with terrorism. So let's take that off the table and really get down to this idea of saying, what is it we actually need or want nuclear weapons to do? And what does that lead to? And I think if you had an intelligent discussion like that, you would have an arsenal that looked very different and, and, and much smaller than the United States has today. That's really interesting. I, I want to ask you how you would get people to start a discussion like that. But I don't know if there's an answer. <laughs> Boy, I, wish, I don't think there is one. <laughs> so, so also considering this idea of deterrence sort of goes along with the relatively well-known concept of mutually assured destruction, where if a country attacks us, we will retaliate and we'll both end up destroyed. But I've also been reading lately the concept of self-assured destruction, which basically says that if a country uses their nuclear weapons, the resulting nuclear winter will be so devastating that the attacking country's citizens will still die in large numbers. Can you get go into that a little bit? Yeah, this has been an interesting debate. I mean, I remember several decades ago when the idea of nuclear winter first came up. And again, the idea is that if you had an exchange of nuclear weapons, that between the smoke that you would send up in the air and particulate matter from dust and other things like that, that would go up in the upper atmosphere and, and stay there for some long amount of time, months or years, and it would block enough of the incoming sunlight that it would significantly reduce the temperature in the earth and it would reduce growing seasons and things like that. And at the time, people didn't really understand the climate well enough to know whether that was real or not. And it was very controversial. Uh, more recently, researchers who are using much better climate models have gone back and looked at this and have found, in fact, that it's true. 
And in fact, what they found is that if you look at a relatively small exchange, for example, between India and Pakistan, both of whom have nuclear weapons, that the result of burning cities, of the explosions and things like that, could put enough dust and soot and other things in the atmosphere to significantly depress worldwide climate. So it would have global climate impacts that would lead to food shortages. And they have estimated that you could have uh, upwards of a billion casualties globally from that kind of thing happening. Now, I think that's something which uh, is recent enough and people have not been paying attention to this issue that people are really surprised to hear. But it's really this notion that uh, the idea that you could have a, a nuclear exchange of any size and think of it as being just something that was either localized in South Asia with India and Pakistan or you know, localized to the Soviet Union or something like that really doesn't make any sense. And that, and that you have to take into account the fact that there are these long-term global impacts and that that really has to be reflected in a change in the way that people think about nuclear weapons from the way they did during the Cold War. And unfortunately, one of the things we're seeing is that the Cold War way of thinking about these issues has been very, has had a lot of inertia and still tends to guide the way people think about it. And so sort of along the same lines with climate change, I know Sanders has said that climate change is the biggest threat the nation faces. And I'm curious, you also, the Union of Concerned Scientists does a lot with climate change. I'm wondering how, how you view the risks of climate change compared to the risks of nuclear war. Well, the way we think about them, and I think it's similar uh, to the way that the Future of Life Institute thinks about them, is that, is that there are a handful of uh, existential threats, things that could really change, either end life or certainly end life as we know it. Uh, climate change, I think, is, is one of those that people are, are starting to become more aware of, in part because they're starting to see you know, implications of it. They're starting to see the ice caps melt. They're starting to see weather changes. So I think people are starting to realize that this, this threat has been set in motion and, and the world really needs to rally to figure out how to keep it from getting worse. And that's, you know, to, to some extent, a sense of optimism that people are actually starting to grapple with that. If it's not dealt with or if it's not dealt with effectively, I think it could be something that's really catastrophic. And the concern is that even if we do the best we can, there's going to be uh, serious implications of it. In some sort of insidious way, I think uh, nuclear weapons are harder to deal with because they're somewhat invisible. A lot of people don't realize that since the end of the Cold War, that there are still about 15,000 nuclear weapons in the world, that those weapons are typically much larger, much, much larger than the weapons used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so it's hard to get people to pay attention to this. It's hard to get political will to even start to grapple with this problem. And I think they've also become a bit of a, of a symbol when people think about, you know, it's a dangerous world. How do we make ourselves secure? There's a tendency to fall back on nuclear weapons as sort of the ultimate safety net. And yet the way I look at this is that, is that regardless of how you think about nuclear weapons and the role they played in the Cold War, that today nuclear weapons are a liability. They don't address the key problems that we're facing, like terrorism and things like that. And by having large numbers of them around, we set up the possibility that rather than a sort of a slow onset cataclysm as we might get with climate change, that you could have a very rapid cataclysm that people you know, are, are reeling from forever. And so I think in some ways, uh, they're both real things that people need to grapple with, 
And part of what we need to do is is figure out how to make people more aware of the fact that nuclear weapons issues are still here, they're still a threat, and we need to deal with them. And certainly issues like Iranian nuclear weapons have been in the public news a lot. Do you think they're a big risk? Do you think it's a distraction from the real risk that nuclear weapons could pose between the U.S. and Russia and other countries? How does... How does Iran fit into this? Well, as I was saying before, there's an issue that is sort of dealing with the new countries getting nuclear weapons, terrorists getting uh, nuclear weapons, and what do the existing nuclear powers do about their weapons? I think that any time a country, a new country, gets nuclear weapons, it's a concern because you don't know what that country might do with them, how good its security is, whether or not, you know, in, in making their own nuclear material those countries will be able to really safeguard it so that it doesn't leak out. And it's clearly the fact that Iran is in the Middle East is a concern because of the of sort of volatility and conflicts that are going on there. So I think it is a big deal. And I think when people look at what you can do about it, I think that the, the Obama administration's uh, Iran deal, while you know it was a negotiation that led to a result that I think is is very positive, but is clearly not the the end of the problem that you might have liked. But I think the idea of trying to use diplomacy to try and figure out how you can slow these things down, how you can try and get a country like Iran to change the way it's thinking about its security issues, its relationship with the United States, with neighbors, uh, is a is a necessary part of all this. I mean, the other case that I would look at, of course, is North Korea. Now there was a recent North Korean test, nuclear test, is fourth since 2006. And again, I think one of the problems there has been that there is North Korea sees the United States as a potential enemy, has been for right or for wrong concerned about a a U.S. invasion of, of the North, feels like nuclear weapons give it some security with respect to that. I think that was certainly increased after the U.S. war with Iraq, where uh, North Korea seemed to take away the idea that if you don't want to be invaded by the United States and its allies, you need to have nuclear weapons. Uh, and yet there's not a serious diplomatic effort to try and sit down and talk about what the underlying tensions are. And I would, for example, like to see sometime soon Secretary Kerry go to North Korea just to start those discussions without preconditions, because I think anytime you have countries that have that sort of level of armaments, that you need to be talking to them. Uh, you need to be trying to figure out what the middle ground is, what the, what the threats, what the misperceptions are. Then finally, the thing I would say about the Middle East and Iran that makes things difficult is uh, Israel. Israel is known to have an arsenal of probably 300 nuclear weapons. It is, it's not a declared state. It's, it sort of keeps that secret. It's one of the worst kept secrets in the world. And yet that clearly is an issue to other countries in the Middle East and, and Iran. So there's a set of issues there that have to be figured out if you're going to think about a long-term solution to the Iran issue. And, and again, that's an issue that is just not being talked about. This has turned into a really helpful overview of uh, this, the state of nuclear weapons in our country and around the world. But I should probably bring it back to the political campaign, too. On that note, with respect to the upcoming debates, 
is there something you would really like to hear the political candidates discuss that we haven't gone over yet today? The thing that I'd like to hear the candidates really grappling with is how do you reduce the risk that nuclear weapons will be used and how do you reduce the consequences if they are used? In terms of reducing the risk that they're used, I'd like to hear people talking about taking weapons off alert, about getting rid of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, both the U.S. and Soviet Union had a, had a large number of weapons that they designed to use in the battlefield. We get, got rid of a bunch of those after the end of the Cold War, but there are still large number around. Uh, Russia still has a bunch of them. And, and those are worrisome because they were designed with the idea to be used in a escalation of an ongoing conventional conflict. But I would also like to see people talking more and more about diplomacy and discussions with countries we may have conflicts with. And how do you reduce the fact that there are going to be disagreements and that those disagreements may turn into conflicts and those conflicts may, you know, through some peculiar route, uh, end up with uh, nuclear use. And that includes both talking with Russia, talking with China. There are a lot of uh, tension points with China right now, and we are not having a level of discussion with China over those things that I think we really need to be having. So there's a lot of, of distrust and misunderstanding. And I think countries should be trying to cut their, their arsenals. The Joint Chiefs of Staff in the United States told the Obama administration last year or two years ago, that it could do another one-third cut in its arsenal. So the deployed arsenal now it will get down to about 1,500 weapons. And they said you, the United States could go down to 1,000 weapons independent of what anybody else did. It's not, it's not reliant on what Russia does. I think that would be a good thing. And I think Russia's response to that would be in trying to save money and other sorts of things that it would also cut its arsenal. So I think that kind of taking a step to reduce the number of weapons in the world would be incredibly useful. And the, you know, the other kind of thing I think people need to do is be really aware of new types of weapons that can make things more difficult. And, and one of the ones that I worry quite a bit about is space weapons, especially with respect to China. There's a lot of concern that China is developing uh, systems that could be used to destroy satellites that would be useful to the U.S. military. And the concern about that is that starting a conflict, which then leads to a conflict in space with satellites being destroyed, war games have shown that those can very quickly uh, go nuclear. So again, that's the kind of thing we ought to be sitting down, talking with China about, trying to come up with rules of the road, making sure those things don't uh, spill over into the nuclear realm. And finally, just what I mentioned before is I think people really need to be talking about what are nuclear weapons to be used for? And I think that should be only for deterrence and then to follow that on by saying, if that's the goal, what do we need? And it doesn't mean spending a trillion dollars over the next three decades to rebuild our entire nuclear infrastructure. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. This has been, it's been a really good overview. I'm very much hoping that you will come back and talk to me again about a lot of these issues in more detail. I'd be happy to. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. To learn more, visit futureoflife.org.